0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. As you uh, may have noticed, we moved the podcast back. We usually... We taped this on Friday morning, but uh, when the word went out that uh, President Biden was going to take his third crack at addressing the country about the crisis in Afghanistan, um, we decided we were going to move it uh, later in the afternoon on Friday so that Bill Kristol and I would have a chance to actually listen to the president and whether or not the president uh, changed his tone in any way Um we uh, are, you know, as, as we are taping this, uh, the president just wrapped up and made the commitment that any American who wants to come home is going to get home. Let's listen to a little bit of uh, President Biden.
1: But let me be clear any American who wants to come home, we will get you home. But make no mistake, this evacuation mission is dangerous. It involves risks to our armed forces, and it's being conducted under difficult circumstances. I cannot promise what the final outcome will be, or what it will be that it will be without risk of loss. But as Commander-in-Chief, I can assure you that I will mobilize every resource necessary. And as an American, I offer my gratitude to the brave men and women of the U.S. Armed Forces who are carrying out this mission. They're incredible.
0: And uh, th- there were moments of empathy that some critics felt that they did not uh, hear in the in the last two remarks that that he made, where he talked about how gut wrenching the scenes were. And but then he also said that there was there would be plenty of time to criticize, but right now it was uh, all about the mission.
1: As is the case, whenever I deploy our troops into harm's way, I take that responsibility seriously. I carry that burden every day. Just as I did when I was vice president, my son was deployed to Iraq for a year. There'll be plenty of time to criticize and second guess when this operation is over. But now, now, I'm focused on getting this job done. I would ask every American to join me in praying for the women and men risking their lives on the ground in the service of our nation. So joining me...
0: To uh, look back at this week and this speech, who better than our colleague Bill Crystal? Bill, you've been listening to the president this afternoon? I watched him this afternoon, right, and now we're
2: speaking just after you took a few questions and, and left the... Uh the stage there at the White
0: House. So I, I would I would say, and, and feel free to disagree with me as you always do, that the, the first two uh, uh, att- attempts to address the fiasco, the debacle in Afghanistan, were um, less than optimal. Um, in fact, I think that they were were kind of, whew, I they were uh, di- dis- distressing. Let me put it that way. That feels like a euphemism. Did the President change his tone? did he did he say anything that you were you know that you were really hoping that he would say? Um, did he leave certain things still unsaid? Give me give me your take of where we're at right now. i'm
2: I'm happy to, and I agree with you. I, I was very distressed by the his previous speeches. I'm most distressed, of course, by what's happening on the ground. And there, so for the speeches to really cheer me up, they'd have to announce a greater recognition of what's gone wrong and some changes in planning and policy to try to make things better or, or to rethink things. I didn't see much or really any of that. I've got to say little edging forward in terms of we are going to do whatever it takes to get the Americans out. That might indicate that two weeks from now, if uh, the Taliban isn't being as cooperative as the president seems to portray them as being for now, uh, he'll do a few more things. But no fundamental sense that you know, this isn't going well, that we're not on course to get most of our Afghan friends out and that uh, and that the whole thing has been so, well, that it just isn't going well. It hasn't gone well. You know, I'm very struck you played that. The second clip you put, played, it hadn't really occurred to me when I was watching it live, but uh, the president said, I just scribbled this down. I think this is right. Whenever I deploy American troops into harm's way, I take that responsibility seriously. And he mentioned his son who served in Iraq. Think of that. Step back, which is a very normal thing to say and a perfectly appropriate thing to say. But think about it for a minute. Whenever I deploy American troops into harm's way, he's he's correct. He has now deployed what five, six thousand right American troops into harm's way to get American citizens out of Kabul, a city that out of a country that we've been in for 20 years that we've, you know, had some problems in, obviously, but that, I was going to say we've controlled, but that we, you know, we had a friendly government basically controlled from for the huge, for almost all that time, in the capital city of which we had a massive presence. What does it say what, that you have to deploy troops uh, into harm's way to finish an evacuation that you had months to plan for, uh, that you have, that everyone that he'd announced that everyone knew was coming, plenty of time to negotiate with the Taliban if that's what you wanted to do. Uh, again, that's a, for me, that just put the exclamation point, hearing that once again, of what a fiasco this is, that we're evacuating troops, and to do so, we're deploying 6,000 troops into what the president himself describes as an extremely challenging and chaotic situation.
0: I don't think that it is a but Trump moment to point out that this really is a bipartisan um, screw up of, of of epic proportions that that in many ways, this really is the the Trump Biden fiasco uh, with with Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo essentially surrendering, uh, surrendering to the Taliban and shutting down um, for months at a time. Any of the interviews of the Afghan uh, of the uh, Afghan translators and other people who are wanting those uh, those special uh, visas. But uh, as as you tweeted out just a few minutes ago, um, you know some of the Biden supporters who have been critical of you know, you know t- uh, Trump's 2020 agreement um, do so as a way of excusing Biden. But but uh, you heard Biden basically saying that the deal was with was in fact consistent with what he wanted to do. So let's let's talk about that for a moment. I I, I heard him say that look uh, that that had he not pulled out. Um, given what, uh, w- the situation that Trump had, 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 had left him with that he would have had to have surged a massive number of troops, but it's obvious that he wanted out as badly as possible. And as you pointed out earlier, and he got it, he pulled out as badly as possible.
2: Yeah, I mean, didn't he say? I think he said earlier this week that you know he would have gotten out. He was campaigning to get out of Afghanistan before the Trump-Pompeo agreement in early 2020, and I think that's true, and that's been his position, and that's fine. But then you can't really get too upset as a Biden supporter about the Trump-Pompeo agreement. Maybe it made the withdrawal a little harder. If there hadn't been that agreement, there would have been a a Biden-Blinken agreement in March of 2021, I suppose, with the Taliban, and maybe that would have all gone more smoothly. But Biden. Made Him, I think, correctly in a way he said today, made it seem as if he's simply carrying out the obvious implications of what Trump did. That he agrees with the thrust of what Trump did, and he certainly, certainly was not only reluctant but refused to do anything to really uh, change the emphasis of uh, of the direction. That we were going, uh, based on what Trump, based on what Trump did, he did finally speed up a little bit the you know, visa programs and stuff. Though even that, he was extremely slow uh, to recognize how incredibly far behind we were, or he must have recognized it was widely reported. Incredibly slow to act on that. There was very little urgency, and members of Congress of both parties, who many of whom had served in Afghanistan. Wrote pretty frantic letters when you look at them back in the spring of this year. I mean, not the normal letter you write if you're a a member of Congress, especially to a president of your own party, saying what is going
0: on. You know, so. Well, there was one factual comment that's getting a lot of attention at least, and I don't want to you know pull the lens back in just a moment, but uh, you know, sticking with the president's remarks. Uh, the president said that he had no intelligence that Americans had, been able, that had not been able to get to the Kabul airport. And so the question was, you know, does that square with what we're seeing on the ground? And all the reporters are kind of lining up going, no, I mean, totally not. A lot of Americans are having a very, very tough time uh, running that Taliban gauntlet. So it is simply not true. And I was, I was sort of hoping for a much more definitive statement that you know we will come and get you, and uh, that the, perhaps that Americans would do what uh, the, the French and the Germans and others have been doing, which is to actually send people outside the perimeter and getting their nationals in. But that that was that was an unfortunate moment because clearly what you have is you have pictures, you have images of Americans who are not uh, able to get to the airport, and the president saying, "Yeah, I, I don't know anything about that."
2: Didn't you think, Charlie, that he sort of retreated then to what he meant to be saying was, well, Americans, once they prove they're Americans, and that sometimes takes a while, especially if they might have be dual nationality or have an Afghan spouse or something, um, still, or of Afghan descent or Middle Eastern descent. Nonetheless, eventually the Taliban apparently let them through those checkpoints. Okay, let's even, I don't know if that's entirely true, but let's stipulate that that's true. But then when they get to the mob scene around the airport, they don't all make it through, and it's very dangerous. And and uh, and we know what We there was an interview, very good interview. This I think maybe this morning on ABC of an American who has been in Afghan, a tough, like a big guy, tough guy, not a not some kind of you know healthy young youngish guy who had thought this through and finally taken his wife and daughter, and I think another uh, a, a couple as well with their child, and gone to the airport. They couldn't make it through the crush outside. Now, that's somehow Biden is distinguishing, I guess, from the Taliban checkpoints. That's just the chaos around the air force. Yeah. Well, we have 6,000 troops there. I mean, he, he didn't really get pushed on this question of why not expand the perimeter. And that's complicated. I'm not, you
0: know, we well, would have excited. to send more troops.
2: I mean, yeah, my, yeah. Well, you might have to send more troops. I'm not sure you with 6,000 is a lot of troops. I mean, I talked to someone who served in Afghanistan last night who said, I mean, it's a pretty chaotic situation, but you don't really need 6,000. If you're securing one airstrip mm-hmm. and you know, processing people inside the airport, it's not clear that you need 6,000 troops for that. Now, if you have a chaotic situation outside and you're trying to manage that, you are But the way you make a situation less chaotic outside is you then go outside and establish order. Now he doesn't want to do that. That probably would require as a matter of prudence, more troops. And then of course you could say, well, the perimeter outside that will be chaotic. Yeah. So it's, none of this is easy or a solution, but I, I thought it was, it was revealing as you suggested, the the fact that he's thinking of it in as narrow a way as possible. So if no, if literally no American has been ultimately uh, turned away at a actual Taliban manned checkpoint, then there's kind of not a problem. The agreement's working fine. As if that's the only thing that the, but if the Taliban's going house to house searching for the interpreters, if if mobs are that are Taliban friendly or outside the airport, or mobs of people trying to get into the airport are are more more maybe this is more the case, are making it very hard to get there and the Taliban isn't policing that maybe we don't want them to police that but then we have to police it and so again it's a a certain kind
0: of evasion of fundamental responsibility for the situation i think yeah here's the take from uh um, our, our good friend uh, Eli Stokels from uh, the Los Angeles Times, he said in broad strokes, Biden's not giving an inch on his Afghan decision uh, execution, but at least the tone was, seemed like a do-over. He took questions, was less prickly than in the ABC interview, less defined. He expressed more empathy for desperate Afghans and sought to present the latest numbers as uh, as progress. But uh, the new tone doesn't obscure the obvious discrepancy here. Uh, Biden claiming that he's going to keep his promise to the Afghan allies And acknowledging the Taliban is only allowing U.S. passport holders into the airport. So there is clearly a little bit of of tension there. But also, um, just looking at the situation that we're in right now, I mean, the Taliban control the country. And right now, there's obviously some sort of an agreement, uh, tacit and explicit, that they're going to um, behave themselves to a certain extent. Uh, is is is, are Biden's options constrained by the fact that if he's too if he's too forceful or if he's too negative that the Taliban will say, well, screw you, we're going to start killing Americans. We're going to we'll we'll take hostages and you'll be back in an Iran hostage situation. I mean, right now, I mean, in a sense, you know, he's got to work with the Taliban. and, And isn't that kind of, again, one of the oh, my God, how did we get to this point?
2: Yeah, well, it is a hell of, How do we get to this point? No, and I, but I agree with that. And I've not been one of those. And I've sort of uh, tried to privately even caution some friends of ours, you know, to be screaming and yelling about that he's not, you know, denouncing the Taliban every ten minutes. I mean, that that would be, uh, might be counterproductive, and they may be pulling their. Rhetorical punches in certain ways to make sure that this agreement that they think is working adequately for now to at least get people through the checkpoints that that continues. Of course, the Taliban doesn't control things that much. I mean, like any insurgent uh, force taking over, you know, a city, they've got all kinds of elements, and you know, God knows what what could be happening. It doesn't look like I talked to someone last night who's in touch with trying to get some people out, and therefore is in touch with and has been in government, so he's in touch with actual people there, both inside and outside of the airport uh, he's worried that the situation is not getting better. It's getting worse. That is to say, there's not more Taliban control. Let's call it the, uh, you know, mainstream Taliban or whatever governing Taliban control. There might be less. And then we read this morning, don't we, that the Haqqani network, Haqqani himself is back in Kabul. Mm -hmm. The Haqqani network network is in, in key places. That is a brutal, uh, terrorist and terrorist affiliated organization and an Al Qaeda affiliate, incidentally, longtime partner. The Al-Qaeda and terrorist efforts, which that was one of the more stunning things in the press conference when Biden simply asserted, seemed to a certain passing, that Al-Qaeda is out of Afghanistan. I mean, no one believes that. Maybe they're There's not. We
0: have a picture of him right there. Yeah, I mean, Al
2: not, not quite Al Qaeda. You could, I guess, logic chop this one too, but anyway, I mean, it's, it's, so the whole thing, I mean, is is depressing. On that point, sadly, one thing that didn't, another thing that didn't get enough attention is that if Biden is also uh, inconsistent with what we were just saying, which what we were just saying, he was just saying, um, Biden's consistently talked about the over the horizon ability to do counterterrorism. You don't have to have troops on the ground. Turns out that he asked Putin at the summit for to, to facilitate bases in. The the one or more of the stands down there, whichever one it was, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, I don't know. I don't know that we know. Uh, But they would, Putin probably would have a veto over that, given Russia's dominant influence there. And Putin said, no, well, if we don't, if we're not worried about the -the over-the-horizon present, you know, if it's so easy to do counterterrorism from far away, why are we desperately asking Putin Putin to let us station groups, troops there. It makes you think that maybe it would have been prudent not to pull everyone out and keep, you know, a few thousand troops at Bagram and a few thousand troops in Kabul. And even if a lot of the rest of the country, frankly, went, you know, went went bad, uh, have those bases for counterterrorism or make an arrangement before we got out. That's the thing that I keep coming back to. And I've talked to so many people, as you have the last few days, yeah. who have been, you know, in these kinds of, policy, difficult policy situations before, to to simply say, get out. And then, you know, we don't care in a sense, sense about the consequences. We're not going to do the f- many other things we have to do at the same time, which might slow down the withdrawal or change the way we do it, or make us think about other things that are very important. There seems to have been none of that. He ordered the military to get out. Uh, we don't want American casualties. The military said, well, sir, we know how to do that. Safer is faster. Faster is safer. And uh, well, we'll just leave. Bagram. If you leave Bagram in the middle of the night and fly off, uh, you're not going to have any U.S. casualties, and that's a good thing—not to have U.S. casualties. You're also going to totally demoralize the Afghan army. You're going to leave the place to get trashed. You're not going to have a modern, fully capable airport from which to do the evacuation. You're not going to have done the evacuation yet. But to be fair to the military, no one asked them to weigh those things into consideration. I hope the Secretary of Defense at least said to the president, well, what about these other things? Certainly the National Security Advisor, his job is to say, well, wait a second, the only criteria in here can't be faster or safer. We have other, it's not maybe safer for the Afghan uh, Afghans who were committed to taking out or the civilians in Kabul or these spillover effects you know, uh, in the country and outside. But it, they seem to have had an incredibly... Uh, you know, the, the greenish decision-making, therefore, was so simple-minded in a way, or one track, I guess, as <laughs> one could say, and the one track was, we want to get the U.S. military out there, out of there as quickly as possible. Not even the U.S. military plus U.S. civilians. You know. See, the, the, I mean, the, think the, about that for a minute. You're the president of the United States. You're right. supposed to keep 10 things in mind, our allies the right. long-term, but even leaving all that aside... It wasn't even get the U.S. civilians in the U.S. military or the U.S. civilians in the Afghan, you know, helpers and friends and the U.S. military out safely, was really seems to have been just, I want those troops out of there as soon and as safely as possible.
0: The part that I find the hardest to understand, though, and I, I say I, I understand that I can I can imagine that conversation taking place, but clearly he was then relying on the Afghan military to you know hold the fort, right? right. So that that they would cover the retreat and that things would not fall apart. And yet, they also—and um, you correct me again if I'm if I'm wrong—they also pulled all of the logistical support for the Afghan security forces. Uh, this is an army that had been trained to fight the way we fight, which is relying on air support, which requires people who will you know do the maintenance, who have a, manage the supply chains. And as far as I can see, we also pulled the plug on all of that. So made it very, very difficult for the Afghan security forces to fight. They didn't have the air cover. They didn't have the logistical support. They didn't have the supply lines that they would have had. You would have thought that that there would have been a conversation saying, "Okay, Mr. President, we'll get all the troops out. But what we have to do is we have to make sure that our support, our logistical support for the Afghan military stays intact, at least for a while. But apparently that didn't happen either. Well, you're totally right, but that's and that support is mostly
2: was mostly contractors. But you right. still would have to have some troops to protect the contractors. And there you get back to the fact that either no one was willing to tell President Biden, "Hey, look, we need to keep some troops. We cannot just draw down as quickly as possible to so where were we below a thousand when the whole when the fiasco began a week ago, and now we are built back up to six seven thousand. We, we're going to have to stay at twenty five hundred, manage these different parts, get different." types of people out in, you know, in, in sort of stages, see what happens as we do so, see how fast we think things are going to, to to fall apart. If we think they're falling apart fast, we might have to have a very temporary surge back in to stabilize till we get people out. I mean, that would be the normal decision-making process. It's not, I'm not inventing some fanciful, complicated thing. This would be a normal way if someone said, the President of the United States said, I ultimately want us out of there, and I want us out of there reasonably soon. What I've just been saying would be the absolutely normal conversation between the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor and Secretary of Defense and so forth. It, It just
0: doesn't seem to have happened in any serious way at all. So as, as, as you saw, uh, the former president uh, issued a statement yesterday saying what he would have done. First of all, you bring out all the American citizens, then you bring out all the equipment, then you bomb the bases into smithereens, and then you bring out the military. You don't do it in reverse order like Biden and our woke generals did. No chaos, no death. They wouldn't even know we left. So any any confidence that B- Trump would have done this better? Well, I mean, he doesn't mention the Afghans at all, so he just would have <laughs> left
2: the Afghans. I, I think that's probably consistent with his general view of these things. Well, um, he
0: did propose a complete and total ban on Muslims, and we know yeah. that Steven, <laughs> Stephen Miller has been one of the most adamant opponents of, of uh, having the special immigrant visas for Afghans. So that's, right. That, no, that's love a fair.
2: Some Fox News right is now against... Uh, letting in people
0: who have spent their whole
2: lives fighting (laughs) militant Islamist terrorists. So it's like, I don't know, aren't they, aren't we like those kinds of people? I mean, even if, you know, even if you're dubious about other refugee programs and stuff, but, um, I mean, Trump, maybe he would have done I mean, who knows? He was incapable of managing a serious process too. And by and incidentally, if he'd still been president, it would have been the second term, and God knows who would have been in charge of the Defense Department and other key agencies. So that's another problem. It would have you know, he, in Biden's case, I think we have competent people at the top of these agencies, at least. So I have no great confidence in Trump. I will say this honestly, though, that the actual two sentences or so that you read is a more logical way to pull people out, you know. It's mm-hmm. kind of get everyone you want to get out out first and then get the soldiers out. That is kind of an obvious, you know, if, if you're really into the getting out business, it's kind of how you get out of things. Right. And, yeah. um, it, so I, 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 mean, the fact that Trump makes a certain amount of sense, very limited amount of sense here is maybe, you know, for people like me, the ultimate, uh, uh what's ultimately the most damning thing about this, that you read a Trump tweet and you think, well, you know, there's some truth to that.
0: <laughs> so let's pull back the lens a little bit. Um, new polls out suggesting that the majority of Americans do not think that the war was worth fighting at all. I think more than 60 percent. So we can separate out the two questions of, you know, was was it right to withdraw versus the way that we are withdrawing? But let me ask you that more fundamental question. Was this looking back all for the full 20 years? Was this war worth fighting if we're leaving it this way?
2: Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I mean, on the polls, I would just make the obvious point that, I mean, when, when t- two presidents in a row, and in some ways, President Obama, more right. complicated in his second term, at least, you know, kind of are so critical of a war, you get but expect sixty percent of the American public to say, "Okay, I guess we shouldn't have been fighting that war. We had no choice to, be, uh, but to fight it at the beginning. Even and even the critics kind of acknowledge that. Uh, I don't think we had much choice. We couldn't just go in and you know try to destroy Al Qaeda and then not care about what came next. And we couldn't be confident Al Qaeda wouldn't come back if we didn't help build something resembling the Afghan army and so forth. And we got twenty years of. Pro- progress in Afghanistan achieved at a very slow pace, uh, slow pace, in a very difficult way. Obviously, with real, with real cash, real price to be paid, both by us and our our soldiers and marines, but also obviously by the Afghan people. and uh, and, and monetary price, uh, we got no terrorism from there for twenty years, which is not nothing. And we kept reasonable stability in the immediate region, which again is a very dangerous part of the world and i'm i really dislike the pakistanis they've been playing both sides the pakistani governments they've been, they've played both sides on this they've they helped the taliban in many ways i've long been in favor of much tougher policy against pakistan when we were in afghanistan but The fact that Pakistan didn't fall apart, that that none of their nuclear, and none of their nukes got into the possessions of terrorists, the terrorists didn't take over their government, even though they've infiltrated the armed services probably to some degree, that's not nothing either. So I think it was a, you know, a crummy situation, but um, compared to some of the alternatives, a, a decent situation. And again, I come back to the fact that in 2014, Uh, Again, he didn't quite do it the way I would have wished, but we had handed over the war fighting to the Afghans, and maybe it was deteriorating slowly, and maybe it couldn't have been sustained forever, but I mean, just on the facts, and you really got to come back to that the situation was tolerable from 2015 through 2020. And I do think, therefore, the burden of proof is very much on the people who say, oh, well, it couldn't have been sustained. Really? Something is sustained for five years? It can't be sustained for seven or 10? I mean, what, you need to show me why that's wh- why that's fundamentally true. Would we have to go back up to 15,000 troops? Which is, I think is what we had in 2019, maybe, before Trump began his last visit. Maybe that's when Trump took over in 2017. I don't think there was a huge, raging uh, sentiment here in the U.S. that we couldn't have 15 or 13 or 8,000 troops in Afghanistan for the next few years. So even if we had to go back up from 2,500 a little bit, I think that was doable. So, so that's, you know, I, th- I think this is an unnecessary... Uh, humiliation.
0: We, uh, of, of, of course, there are some people who think that uh, we're criticizing Biden too much for all of this, that, uh, you know, it's an unwon war. It was going to be chaotic. Uh, Jennifer Rubin, who is also never Trump, uh, tweeted out about an hour ago, uh, Hours from when we're taping here. Um, she refers to, I, I suppose we would be part of this, the Biden could have left but better crowd. Um, she says that, uh, this, this crowd, um, uh, is self-deluding because once you decide to leave an unworn, uh, an unwon war, chaos and suffering ensue, period. No unwon war has ever ended neatly without the enemy's surrender. Really? A lot of the commentary is silly. I look, you know what? I, I'm, you know I, I just don't think never Trump is always Biden. And in this particular case, I think you need to say that even if you support the decision to pull out, uh, and I actually have mixed feelings about that, even if you support that, though, uh, that there is a certain level of expectation that it be done with with planning and prudence um, and adapt to the changing circumstances and and getting things right. And I just don't even know how you make the spin that this was inevitable or that this is acceptable or that this is a good look either for America or for 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 Biden. And I think, you know, it's a, I think he deserves all the criticism he's getting to be quite honest.
2: Look, some of the most powerful criticisms have been from Democratic Congressman Tom Malinowski from New Jersey, Seth Walton from Massachusetts, Jason Crow from Colorado. They've been great. This is not some kind of like, oh, we're have to be critical of Biden because, you know, it shows we're not too Democratic. I wish actually more, some of the Republicans actually, some of the Republican criticism has just been silly and uh, focused it on, on, you know, uh, the sort of the threat of the refugees coming here. Some of the Republican criticism has been responsible and, and sober and serious. Uh, a lot of it has been pure partisanship by Kevin McCarthy and people like that and not substantive. I wish they were going to the floor and giving much more substantive speeches. But I've got to say, some of the some of the Democrats have been, I think, uh, sober and responsible critics of a Democratic president, which is a, a good thing. And I I don't think we've done much more than echo them. I personally have actually learned from them and have been in touch with them, trying to help get some people out. Um, so I I think it's it's a little odd for I don't think never Trumper never Trumpers. Uh, Whether we're still Republicans or future former Republicans or ex Republicans are more are more required required to be more supportive of Joe Biden than a whole lot of Democrats who supported him.
0: So how where do you come down on this? How badly politically damaged is Joe Biden? Uh, Reading reports at the White House is is counting on them being able to weather this because the war was so unpopular, and so this is going to be you know as long as he sticks to uh, you know sticks to his position that he's going to be okay. i'm i'm skeptical of this uh i mean we've we've watched how nothing seems to move the needle but this does seem like a out of the ordinary level of political disaster what's your take
2: yeah i'm i think it could do real political damage a huge amount depends on now what now happens i mean we could you know gradually just being the u.s we've End up getting kind of getting everyone out, end up getting a fair number of our Afghan friends out, end up hopefully th- think that would be wonderful with no, no casualties. And people think, oh, I was kind of messed up. He should have organized things better. But at the end of the day, you know, he ended up where he said he was going to end up during the campaign and he's the president. I'm not going to second guess everything. And you kind of get a reversion to just normal. You know, uh, praise or blame about Biden, uh, support or, or 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 non-support of Biden on other issues. So that's quite possible, I think. But I do think when you see this kind of operational incompetence, that does I think for a lot of voters signal, oof, boy, I wonder what, 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 that's that they should be able to do. I mean, I I think we've seen this in the past. Voters give a lot of leeway to presidents on foreign policy. They don't know that much voters. They know the president has all this information. And, you know, maybe they don't quite agree or their instinct isn't quite the same. But, you know, he's the president. He's making the tough decisions. I'm not going to necessarily, he's working hard. He seems like people around him know what they're doing. I'm not going to second guess it. When you lose confidence in the kind of operational capacity of an administration, I think I've always thought that does the most political damage. For me, that in Iraq, I mean, think about it this way: we didn't find weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. It's kind of bad to go to war yeah, on WMDs yeah. and not okay. find. I say this as a supporter of the war, yeah. obviously, but Bush won re-election in '04. People thought, okay, the intelligence agencies really screwed up, but you know what? It, Saddam was terrible anyway, and maybe it'll work out fine. By mid-late 05, when when it was clear that we were not pursuing a winning strategy in Iraq, but we were stubbornly denying that it wasn't winning, and then Katrina happened, and Katrina may be more important of the two, but when Katrina happened, it just looked like these guys are incompetent. I mean, it's all just a kind of, I don't know, what's going on? Bush's numbers started to crater in late 05, and they just stayed cratered for the next three years. Um, I don't know that we're quite in a Katrina slash Iraq type situation. Same as true of Carter, incidentally. The Iran hostage taking was very bad, and headlines, and did some political damage, you know, just because they were hostages. Cool. But I would say the, the Desert One fiasco with the helicopters may have even, may have done more damage, or at least certainly compounded the damage in a very fundamental way. Not only did he somehow have a policy that ended up with uh, these guys being taken hostage, maybe that could have happened with any president, you know, it's who knows, embassies, you know, suddenly they take your your embassy hostage. But then you send in the military, and they, you know, the helicopters uh, uh, hit each other and tried to take off, off, I guess it was, and and eight Americans die. Uh, You know, that, I think, sort of compounded the notion that this, this guy can't, you know, is not good at being president. And one last point, Sarah made, one made this point to me based on her focus groups. There is that narrative out there about Biden, which I don't believe, but uh, obviously has some penetration beyond maybe just Fox world, that he is a little old. Well, he is a little old. That's parts true. And that he's kind of losing it or isn't quite up to the job and stumbles and so forth. And in that respect, the failures of Management fit into a a bit to a narrative of uh, maybe he's not quite up to the job anyway. And did you notice that he stumbled over this at his in his speech or at his press conference? And you know, a lot of that stuff it's hard to put your finger on, but you know, over months and even a year or two, it can add up to a sense of among swing voters and voters who aren't following some of the policy disputes that much. A little bit of a sense of Oof, maybe
0: this president's not quite up to it. So I, I think it could be pretty yeah. damaging to Joe Biden. Well, well, t- taking Joe Biden out of the picture just for a moment, I'm going to come back to him. Um, there's this also larger um, loss of faith in institutions and in elites, and I don't think this is going to help. Uh, because I think the people look around and go, how could they gotten this so wrong? How could the military have gotten this so wrong? How could our intelligence agencies have gotten this so wrong again? And whether or not that these same people are looking at, say, the CDC and beginning to doubt or question, you know, the credibility of those agencies. So what happens when people begin to doubt the Comp- basic competence and reliability of government institutions. I mean, that can be a very, very subversive thing in and of itself. And we know where that leads, where, you know, say, hey, let's have a, you know, a game, you know, failed game show host as president because he's going to burn it all down. Right. I mean, we actually like that. Um, but going back to, to, to Biden, I think this hits him on two things. And I, I agree that, that uh, if, if, the, if the public thinks that he you know, lacks the capacity to be president, that's, that's kind of a fundamental problem. But this this failure seems to go to two of his main branding uh, positives, uh, competence and empathy. We actually thought that he was going to be the competent uh, grown-up, right? Because he had all of this experience. And we also thought of him, I certainly thought of him, as deeply empathetic and very sort of, you know, you know would deal with things on a human level. And I don't think that came through. That, that empathy, there was a moment today uh, during his speech where I think he was empathetic. But I was really struck by the, it, it did feel kind of a, a a certain callousness, which apparently is not new in his, uh, in, in his background. And Peter Wehner had a devastating piece in The Atlantic where he talked about, you know, all of... You know Biden's comments over the years, suggesting we don't have a moral authority to our, you know, Afghan allies. We don't have a moral obligation to women in Afghanistan. And I have to say that that kind of rattled my sense of knowing or understanding who who Joe Biden was.
2: Yeah, that's that's interesting. You know, on your first point, you should. I think you're talking to Eric Edelman. I think he's on this podcast yeah. next week on yeah, Tuesday. Next week. me. Mm-hmm. So I chatted with him this morning. He made exactly the point you made about mm-hmm. the overall question of our institutions. You look at the somewhat chaotic sc- return to school for, for kids You know, this week, yeah. next week, and so forth. And I don't think it's the CDC's fault exactly, but the combination of local state governments, federal government, the system does not seem to be working as seamlessly. And flawlessly as it should. And then you look at uh, what's happening over there in Kabul and you think, ooh, not not yeah, not yeah, the U.S. government does not seem to be, U.S. elites do not seem to be functioning well. U.S. public uh, maybe isn't uh, too responsible either. Look at the vaccines and it can, mm-hmm. it can lead people to be down on the country, which is fine if it leads to reform and uh, to demands for better performance, but can be taken in very irresponsible directions, obviously.
0: And so yeah, I, mean, I think that's a feel- good point. Yeah, people feel that liberal democracy just doesn't work any, anymore. There are all kinds of bad consequences for that. So I don't know. I'm. I'm do are you? A, were you a, ever a fan of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? No, never. Okay, so I remember there, it. I just okay. I never. Okay. I, it's, it's one of my favorite books of all time, in, including the characters, the, the 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 people known as the Vogons, who are the uh, the bureaucrats, and and the Vogons are the 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 dumbest, most callous, uh, slowest possible bureaucrats in the entire universe, who just don't give a shit about anything. And it did occur to me that I wonder if we were sort of having a moment or was, are the Vogons running the United States? I mean, between the, you know, sluggish State Department that, you know, keeps, you know, moving slower than the slowest DMV anywhere in approving these visas to the FDA, which even at this point can't formally approve the vaccines. I mean, how many tens of millions of samples do they need to make up their mind about whether they're going to approve that? We really are seeing how much these really slow, sluggish, often indifferent bureaucracies are shaping and distorting these issues. And I've never been a fan of of bureaucracies, but that's at least one of the subtexts of all of this, isn't it?
2: yeah I know that's interesting. and I mean, I don't know. It seems like you maybe they couldn't just get enough data to be able to say before the beginning of the school year that you know five to twelve year olds uh, could and should be vaccinated. but I mean, we would be in a lot better shape, for example, if, if that could have been done two weeks earlier. Maybe it was impossible, but uh, I, or maybe more than two weeks earlier. Maybe they won't get it done until October. But uh, so an awful lot of things, yeah, coming badly at once, and th- this is a little reminiscent also of 2005 when you got uh, Iraq and Katrina and Harriet Myers and just a general sense right. of incompetence and chaos i don't think we're quite there i mean thank god and i think you know we still have uh, biden's done a pretty good job on on COVID generally and thank god we are vaccinated and the deaths aren't nearly what they would be and the Del- can't really blame him for the delta variant but um but i this one also the other one i would make just again it's not as if okay whatever happens in afghanistan happens and uh and then it sort of ends and then there's second guessing but you know it will continue to have consequences. Uh, there'll be it's not like won't there won't be any news from the store, from Afghanistan itself over the next three years. And more importantly, it's not as if it won't have ramifications uh, in the area, in Pakistan, and elsewhere. And I, I come back to the pieces we had um, earlier this week at the Bulwark that I thought were really excellent. By Charles Fairbanks and mm-hmm. uh, and and and, and uh, uh, Robert Jersinski, on sort of you know what a shot in the arm this gives the jihadists, and you see Haqqani pr- being pr- you know prancing around Kabul as kind of the de facto mayor of Kabul, and suddenly all everything that we paid a price for in the past. When they seem to have the upper hand, when they seem to be the strong horse, we now are going to pay, I'm worried that we will pay a price for again. And again, that's another thing Biden just gave away willfully. We had, I mean, Trump, to his credit, well, Obama, to his credit, and then Trump did crush ISIL, ISIS, mm-hmm. ISIL, whatever you want to call it, the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq between about 20 what 14 when we got back in, and 2017. Now, in the course, first, there was this huge, after we got out of Iraq, of course, this huge rise of... Of the terrorists, which had huge implications in Europe and elsewhere, and a revival of terrorism and a revival of jihadism, we finally got that turned around after about 2015, and uh, and by 2018, 19, my sense around the world—I mean, I'm not saying there were no people getting recruited to be jihadists, but my sense is that they were kind of on their back foot and they were felt like they were in retreat, and there was, you know, you could see things happening in the Middle East, for example, that were somewhat hopeful, and it just felt different. And I do worry a lot uh, now that that reverses again, and we get back to a 2014, 2015 situation, and that would really be terrible for uh, you know for all kinds of reasons, obviously. Um, so anyway, I, I think the notion that this is just sort of a one and done kind of event. That's not the way the world works, you know, when, when, no. when, and do our allies have confidence in us and do other, dicta- other authoritarians get emboldened and the
0: jihadists take a run at another government somewhere and, you know, all kinds of things could happen. Well, and also to back to your point about how, you know, the the mood of the country, you know, can be affected by things that are really sort of not related. People connect the dots. I mean, you know, masks in schools are really not the same story, but they all come together. Because you think about where we were back in May and June, the incredible optimism, the economy is coming back. Uh, we had beaten covid uh, you know, the, the administration seemed to have the wind at its back and, and, and Joe Biden really became kind of the symbol of, of, of kind of an American healing and renewal and coming back. Uh, that's gone now. Uh, the question is whether you can get it back, whether or not, because we've seen things change very, very quickly. So if, in fact, the, the Delta variant does fade away, if we do get on the other side, if the economy remains strong, if this uh, recedes from the public consciousness, um, you know, can you can you reverse this? Yes. But I think there's also that you know that when someone has really fundamentally disappointed you, it's hard to get back. It's, I think it's hard to hard to get that love and feeling back again. If you know what I mean? So uh, we're we're in for we're in for a long slog. Uh, I'm going to make a prediction right now, based on just the sort of the the, the tenor of, of the uh, of the of the criticism of of this, and uh, which is that if the Republicans win control of the House next year, which I think is more likely than not. Um I think the chances are way above 50-50 that they will find some pretext to impeach Joe Biden. Yeah. Um if for no other reason than to cheapen the impeachment process, to to take away the sting of the double impeachment of Donald Trump. But also because this is now the new normal that the base will require that that every time you disagree or somebody has a misstep, you demand that they resign, that they be impeached, um, or it's a sign that we should invoke the 25th Amendment. I mean, maybe that's that's, uh, just a sign of the new um, normal hysteria of our politics, but no one should be surprised if there is a Biden impeachment uh, under a Kevin McCarthy-led House of Representatives and I don't I'm not I'm not saying I'm rooting for that in any way whatsoever and now saying, and what happy, happy weekend there? from Charlie Yes Smith. yes and and well that's kind of yeah but uh, there was no way we were going to go into the weekend with with happy talk look i i hope that he is getting the sense that he needed, Biden needed to change of the tone, that he needed to make a stronger commitment to get Americans out, to get others out. Uh, I do think he's misreading uh, public opinion. Um, I wish he was more definitive about um, staying past that August 31st deadline. Uh, but if in fact uh, we do make some progress, if the Taliban decides that it's in their interest to get us the hell out, and I guess that's what they're counting on, right? Mm. Is the Taliban are saying, "Look, um, let's let's be on reasonable good behavior, which is like a very very low bar for them. What does that mean? Like you know, just beating people with chains as opposed to beheading them on the in the streets. Um, that's that's an upgrade for the Taliban." Um, at least they want us out. And so therefore they're going to, they're, they're not going to do anything particularly horrific, but boy, I, anytime you're relying on the goodwill of the Taliban for any good things to happen, you're in a terrible place. And I think that's, and that's the way we're going into the weekend, Mr. Crystal. Yeah, I, no,
2: but I think it captures the truth, and uh, there's no point having happy talk at this point, honestly. And I do hope that Biden himself, I hope members of Congress, members of his own administration, uh, are truthful and, and are truthful to him. I mean, he I don't know, he's very stubborn, and um, and uh, maybe we'll just kind of, maybe this, even at the margin, though, I think people in the State Department of Defense could be doing things that Biden doesn't quite know about that could help the situation, and I and members of Congress really should think seriously when they get back what they can do, you know, make to make it clear to, to Joe Biden that there's support for doing more. Uh, so we have a better outcome is it really is important, not just for Biden, but really for the country and for the world. it's still a, I mean, this is going to be bad either way, in my view, and uh, sort of a, a, not a good a black mark for the U.S. And uh, and will have negative consequences. Big difference between a foreign policy mistake and a foreign policy, a mismanaged foreign policy that has that's you know, has moderately bad consequences that peter out after a while and that could be reversed in some cases, maybe not in the country itself, but elsewhere. Big big difference between that and a foreign policy mistake that is just allowed to sort of go unchecked and metastasize and really could become the first of a series of things that starts to snowball. And I think that's really what yeah. serious national security people within the administration, outside, commenting on it, need to think hard about because that there there's a there are very bad scenarios that could happen over the next few years. Or there are just, or there are moderately bad ones, or there are we could come to grips with this and recover from this. But um, so well, those, those, are pretty, those are pretty different outcomes, ultimately. Well,
0: and, and 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 to your point, though, I think one of the good the w- good developments, uh, one of the good pieces of news is the fact that there are these strong voices within the Democratic Party, within Joe Biden's own party, telling him that he's got to do the right thing. I mean, people like Seth Moulton um, are not pulling any punches. They're being very, very direct. And so unlike the sort of reflexive Republican support for Donald Trump, you're not seeing that kind of tribal reaction And you are right, Uh, my sense is that there's an overwhelming majority of Democrats, elected Democrats, uh, who, if they had the chance, would tell Joe Biden, you have to do better, you have to get this right. And I think that's a positive development, because, uh, you know, even though, you know, we may, we may deplore this particular development, um, that there's a lot, there's a lot at stake in the success of, of the Biden presidency at this, at this point, and that means that, you have to have more of his friends telling him uh, these hard truths. So again, I hope people understand that. I think in some ways we're trying to do that too. Bill Crystal, thank you so much for um, hanging around late on a Friday afternoon to do this podcast. Uh, I, it was my pleasure. It, wasn't a, it was a sobering and not a very
2: pleasurable, I guess, uh, <laughs> a discussion in that respect in the sense of cheering everyone up. But it was uh, it was my pleasure to join you, obviously.
0: And thank you all for listening to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back on Monday, and we'll do this all over again. And one quick note, I usually put out a newsletter over the weekend with uh, reader feedback, and we have a ton of Bulwark reader feedback on Afghanistan. I hope I can get a lot of it uh, into the Sunday newsletter, but the warning is I might have to break it into two separate newsletters because we have the full range of opinions, and as usual, Bulwark listeners and readers are, are, are thoughtful and Uh, and often eloquent, but also have very, very pointed um, positions. uh, And they don't all agree with us. But hey, you know, we never promised you a safe space. Have a great weekend.